Good evening, church family. It's good to be here and good to worship our living God this evening. Thank you to Martin and the team for leading us in worship this evening. If you have your Bibles, please turn me to John chapter 20, John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. We're concluding our series on the signs and wonders tonight. Uh, in this series, we've looked at the seven signs of Jesus in John's gospel, and this passage again reminds us of the purpose of these signs. Um, but our passage also points us to what I'm going to call the secret eighth sign, which I'm going to hopefully share with you this evening, a sign that is right in front of us that should uh, take precedence all uh, over all the other signs. But let's look at our passage first, uh, John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, and then I'll read a pray for us. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to still our hearts before your word, as we come to hear from you, we ask that we would behold wondrous things of you in your word. In, in particular, we pray that we would behold wondrous things in the gospel. As we've uh, thought on and prayed about missions, as we've been reminded of the beautiful feet that bear the gospel message, as we've been reminded of the urgency of the gospel, we do pray that we would delight in the gospel that we would uh, find our joy in this gospel so that out of a position of delight, we would declare it to our nations, to our nation, to our community, all for the glory of your name. And so we pray, dear Lord, as we reflect upon this uh, last sign uh, and the sign to which all these other signs point to, we pray that our hearts would burn with joy for the gospel. And as it burns, that we declare it boldly to our nation. We ask this all in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. Without it, all our preaching is vain. Without it, all our confessions of faith are futile. Without it, all of us are guilty of misrepresenting God. Without it, all of us are still dead in our sins. Without it, all of our loved ones, when they die, stay dead. Without it, all of us are most to be pitied. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the foundation of the Christian faith. I'm talking about the sine qua non of Christianity. That is to say, I'm talking about something so absolutely essential that if you remove it, you destroy Christianity. I'm talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. Without the resurrection, all our preaching of the gospel is vain. Without the resurrection, our faith is futile. All of us would be guilty of misrepresenting God. All of us would be dead in our sins. All our loved ones would remain dead. And all of us, therefore, would be most to be pitied of everyone alive. 
See, contrary to what one popular song says, the cross is not enough. No, something else is needed. Something else is essential, and that is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why John Stott once famously said, Christianity is in its very essence a resurrection religion. The concept of of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. Now in this series we've looked at various signs, various miracles of Jesus, yet we need to realize that the miracle of all miracles, the, the miracle at the heart of our faith, It is not the the healing of some guy, not the raising of Lazarus. No, it is the raising of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 12 and Luke 11, Jesus tells the unbelieving Jews that one sign will be given them. The sign of the prophet Jonah. And as Jesus explains in those passages, it's a prediction of his resurrection. Just as Jonah was in the heart of the sea and was spat out after three days, so to Jesus will be in the heart of the earth, dead, but after three days, he'll be brought back to life, conquering sin, Satan, and death. Well, in John's gospel, the seven signs of Jesus seem all to point to the greater sign, and that is the sign of the resurrection. This is implied in our passage we've read. In the context of this particular passage, it's in the context of Jesus' resurrection appearances. And it's in that context that John says that Jesus did many other signs. And there are three implications of that. Firstly, Jesus' resurrection is also a sign. But secondly, his resurrection is is the final sign and therefore the most climatic sign. And thirdly, Jesus' resurrection has the same purpose as the other signs. That you may believe in Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, and by believing in him, you would have life in his name. And so given all of this, given the primacy and the purpose of the resurrection, I want us to consider reasons to believe from the resurrection. And note carefully what I'm saying. I won't be looking at reasons to believe the resurrection. Many books have been written about that, many sermons preached on that. No, my, my, my goal is more simple. I want us to see reasons to believe in Jesus because of his resurrection. And my desire is that all of us would either have our faith established in this Jesus or our faith encouraged in this Jesus because of what his resurrection accomplishes for us. And now to do this, I want to give you this evening what I've called the Johannine theology of the resurrection. That is to say, I want us to see how Jesus, through the, through the gospel of John, presents the resurrection and all that the resurrection accomplishes for those who believe. In fact, I would argue from John's gospel that the resurrection, as with all the other signs, provide us with various reasons to believe in Jesus. And so this evening we'll be looking at a number of passages in John's gospel, noting the resurrection and noting why the resurrection matters for us. Why we need to trust this Jesus. 
And hopefully we will see reasons why each one of us should believe in Jesus, why each one of us should trust in Him more and more. And by way of warning, let me warn you, gird your loins because I've got seven points. You heard that, right? Seven points. The first one I want you to see is the resurrection accomplishes our relationship with the Father. The very first appearance of the resurrection in John's gospel is John chapter 2, verse 18 to 21. There it says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, what's interesting of this particular passage is Jesus links himself with the temple. And in particular, he links his resurrection with the replacement of the temple. Jesus' point seems to be this, that all that was significant about the temple has been fulfilled in and through the resurrection. Remember, at the temple, you would find God's provision for sin in the sacrificial system. In the temple, you'd find God's perfect law within the Ark of the Covenant, reminding Israel to be holy. In the temple, you would find God's presence with His people as they worship Him as their joy. See, Jesus in His resurrection has fulfilled all of this. In the resurrection, the Son sacrifices Himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because of the resurrection, the Spirit is sent out and He now writes the law of God on our hearts. And after the resurrection, the Father is now no longer worshipped on this or that mountain. No, He is worshipped in spirit and truth. And the implication for all of this is because of the resurrection, there is a new relationship with God. There is a new meeting place between you and God. There is a new way to worship the one and true living God. See, for fallen man under God's wrath because of sin, for fallen man made unclean because of his unholiness, for fallen man separated from God's presence, the resurrection opens up a way to know God to relate to Him, to worship Him, to enjoy Him. See, the only way to know and worship the true God is not through some dead prophet, some dead wise man. No, it is through the risen and living Lord Jesus Christ. He is the new temple and we meet with God in Him. And so it's appropriate that, the, that John's first mention of the resurrection uh, is in chapter 2 because in the rest of the gospel, he, he teases out what this means. As the gospel progresses and as the resurrection is explained, this relationship with the Father is expanded on and elaborated. At least the second thing I want you to see, the resurrection accomplishes our rebirth by the Spirit. Our rebirth by the Spirit. In John chapter 14, verse 18 and 19, Jesus says this to his disciples. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while you will the, uh, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, referring to his death. But you will see me. Why? 
because of the resurrection. And he tells us that because he says, because I live, you also will live. See, Eugenius comforts his worried disciples that even though he leaves them by the way of the cross, he will not abandon them. He will not leave or forsake them. No, they will see him again. They will be with him again. And through the Spirit, they will live because he lives. Don Carson comments on this. He says, the consequences of Jesus rising from the dead is new life for the disciples, new eschatological life. That is, eternal life of the age to come enjoyed now. And this life is mediated by the Spirit. In fact, I would argue the resurrection accomplishes what theologians call our rebirth, our regeneration, us being born again. See, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, the Spirit is sent to give new life to the disciples of Christ. Life that is born of the Spirit, John 3, 7 and 8. Life that sees and enters into the kingdom of God, John 3, 3 to 5. And life that is eternal and doesn't perish, John 3, 16. It's interesting, Paul even ties the resurrection to our regeneration. In Romans 6, 4, he says this, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, beloved, the resurrection accomplishes our rebirth so that the old has passed away and behold, the new has come and therefore in Christ you are a new creation. That's what the resurrection gives. I'm not sure about you, but have you ever wanted a do-over, right? Uh, To have new life, to have new identity, to have new desires. Perhaps you're an unbeliever, perhaps you're even a, a nominal Christian, but your life is marked by sin, It's marked by darkness, failure, guilt. Your heart is actually still sinful and dead and lifeless. Well, the good news is that the resurrection of Jesus offers a do-over. It offers a reboot with new life. Why? Because he lives, you can live. So the resurrection accomplishes the rebirth by the Spirit. Thirdly, I want you to see that the resurrection accomplishes our forgiveness for sin. In John 20, verse 19 to 20, we read this. On the evening of that day, the first of the week, the doors being locked and where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now remember when Jesus was arrested by the Jewish leaders, not only did Peter deny him, but the rest of them abandoned him. All of them, in a sense, betrayed him and and left him behind. And here the risen Lord Jesus meets his cowering disciples, and instead of a word of rebuke, he greets them with peace. He says, peace be with you. He, He tells this to his guilty disciples now, that might just be a, a standard greeting in Jewish uh, background, but, but the fact that he repeats this message suggests a greater significance. Jesus here is announcing that despite their sin, despite their fear, despite their guilt, he brings peace. 
he offers forgiveness. It's as if he's saying, look at my hands, look at my feet. I've paid for your sin. I've paid for your betrayal. And therefore I live to give you forgiveness. That's why Paul in Acts 13, 37 to 38 says this, He whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, you are still dead in your sins. That's why Paul even says, Romans 4, 25, he says, Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and raised up for our justification. See, in his resurrection, Jesus' sacrifice is accepted and those united to him are forgiven of their sin and they now have peace. They have shalom, forgiveness with God. I don't know about you, but guilt is one of the worst burdens to carry. And Jesus' resurrection offers the relief. In his death, Jesus pays for our sin. And in his resurrection, he offers forgiveness. You see Paul wrestling with this in Romans 7. Paul is wrestling with his sin, his body of death. He, he wonders, why do I keep doing the sin that I know is wrong? At the end of, verse, of chapter 7 of Romans, Paul rests, however, in the victory of Christ. And he rests in this victory of Christ and he declares boldly the very first verse of the next chapter. There is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus' resurrection signals victory over sin and therefore offers peace to guilty sinners. That's the third thing I want you to see. The resurrection accomplishes our forgiveness. The fourth thing I want you to see is the resurrection accomplishes our joy in Christ. When Jesus' disciples are despondent and confused about him leaving them, Jesus offers this word of comfort in chapter 16, verse 20 to 24. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has given birth, delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For the joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus is saying here that the resurrection will lead to lasting joy for his disciples. Joy that cannot be taken away. As one commentator says, the cross that caused them to weep and lament will be a source of rejoicing. Now, this resurrection joy, if you want to call it, that doesn't mean that you won't ever weep and lament again. It doesn't mean that you won't get discouraged and despondent again. No, they, with all Christians, will go through despondency, seasons of affliction and tears. 
But even in those seasons, the resurrection promises joy. How so? The resurrection promises closer intimacy with God. When Jesus is raised, not only is his sacrifice accepted, but all those in him by faith are accepted, and therefore those who come in his name, they are accepted. And what this new intimacy means is this, that when you go through afflictions and despair, you do not go it alone. You are not forsaken because you have a God who hears your prayers, who answers you in your need. Not only do we have access to the Father, but because of the resurrection, we have an advocate before the Father. If Jesus was dead and stayed dead, you had no representations. If he stayed dead, you'd have no intercessor. But as it is, because of the resurrection, he lives, and Hebrews tells us, he lives now to ever intercede for us. Listen to what Paul says, Romans 8.34, who is to condemn Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And what's this end goal? What's the end game of his intercession? What's the goal with our prayers that are offered in his name? He tells us at the end of verse 24, that your joy may be full. See, the resurrection accomplishes joy because it assures us that Christ who lives intercedes for us. He cares for us. He has not left us. He isn't busy with something else. No, he is in our trouble with us. And so I want you to see the resurrection accomplishes our joy in Christ. Fifthly, I want you to see the resurrection accomplishes our security in salvation. In John 10, 11, we find one of the most beautiful descriptions that helps us understand the death of Christ. He says that I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, Jesus tells us that, that his death is him giving himself for his people. He offers himself as that atoning sacrifice to save his people. And in verse 17 and 18, Jesus elaborates on the salvation and points out, points to and makes mention of his resurrection. He says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is a profound description of Jesus' deity. Not only does he have the power and authority to raise a dead man like Lazarus, now even in his death he's able to raise himself. He has authority and power. But, but what does that have to do with us? Or well, the shepherd who gives himself to save his people is the same shepherd who raises himself to keep his people. Look at the conclusion that Jesus draws in John 10, 28, he says there, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The point I want you to see is this, the resurrection accomplishes our eternal security because the one who can raise himself from the dead has hands that can keep you and that can keep you till the end. 
Jesus gives this assurance so beautifully in John 6. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. A few verses later, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What a hope, what hope and what comfort this ought to give us, beloved. Despite all that we may go through in this life, despite the loss, despite the pain, we are never outside of the palm of Christ. He who raised Lazarus, who raised himself, will one day raise us and raise us in glory. What the security, what hope the security offers, especially when we find ourselves in despair. Think of Paul as an example here again. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 11, Paul says this, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on whom? On God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly period, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. See, see Paul could endure despair because of the resurrection. He could endure affliction because of the security that the resurrection offers. And, and therefore, he could have hope even in hopelessness because he knew that God would keep him. And God would raise him. So that's the, the fifth thing I want you to see. The resurrection accomplishes our security in salvation. Sixthly, I'm doing good time, right? Um, sixthly, our resurrection accomplishes our victory over the world. Uh, this is tied to the previous one, uh, in that the resurrection offers us not just security, but safety and victory over our enemies. In John 6, 37, Jesus says this to his disciples, I've said these things to you, now what's he referring to? Well, in the context, he's speaking about his death and resurrection. He's told them about that he's leaving them, that he will come again, that he will give them lasting joy because of the resurrection. And then he says, I've told these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. See, in a world that is marked by tribulation, Revelation 1.9, in the world that is spiritually darkened, John 1.10, in a world that is ruled by evil, John 16.11, in a world that is set against God, John 7.7, 7. in a world that is filled with anti-God desires, 1 John 2.16, this is our comfort. Jesus, the risen Lord, has overcome the world. How? By his death, and his resurrection. Which means that as we face temptation, as we undergo tribulation, as we undergo persecution even, we can take heart. We can have courage. Listen to Calvin on this. He says, As though in ourselves we are almost overwhelmed, if we contemplate that magnificent glory to which 
our head, that is Christ, has been exalted, we may boldly despise all the evils which hang over us. If, therefore, we desire to be Christians, we must not seek exemption from the cross, but must be satisfied with this single consideration, that fighting under the banner of Christ, we are beyond all danger, even in the midst of the combat. Perhaps you're here tonight and you're overwhelmed by the world. You're overwhelmed by the troubles of life. You are worried by all the concerns that you have. You're bombarded by the fleshly desires of this world. Dear friend, beloved of God, there is victory in Christ. There is one who has overcome this world and all its temptations and all its evil. And he promises to give peace which isn't just peace with God, but peace in a world filled with temptation and tribulation. Why? Because of the resurrection, in the resurrection, he promises that. So sixthly, I want you to see that the resurrection accomplishes our victory over the world. Lastly and finally, lastly and finally, our resurrection accomplishes our inheritance in heaven. John 14, verse 1 to 4, is often a well-worn words of comfort and says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If we were not, so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you also may be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Now, strictly speaking, in this passage, Jesus is addressing his ascension. Nevertheless, Jesus' ascension flows from his resurrection. And therefore, we can legitimately say that the resurrection promises for us the hope of heaven. It promises us a glorious inheritance. Why? Because the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ is preparing a place for his people. A place with him, a place with his Father. A place that becomes our home. A place that is our heavenly inheritance. A place that the Bible calls joy, 1611, or Psalm 1611. A place that is a place of love, Zephaniah 317. A place of comfort, Revelation 21, 3 and 4. A place of rest, Hebrews 4, 9 to 10. And a place ultimately of glory, John 17, 5. See, the risen Jesus is preparing a place for his people, a place where there will be full satisfaction, full joy, full love in the presence of our God. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, this is a place we all long to be. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis speaks of something that all of us have. He says we all have an inconsolable secret. What he means is this. We all secretly desire something we haven't fully experienced in this life. We all have a desire behind every other desire that in this life remains unsatisfied. He says this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, heaven, you could say, not only reveals this inconsolable secret, 
but heaven satisfies that secret desire behind every other desire. Why? Because in heaven, without any sin, without any suffering, without any pain, without any grief, we will finally enjoy the desire behind every desire. We will finally enjoy the blessed God. We will enter into His presence and we will be satisfied. See, see, this heavenly inheritance is placed before us because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and therefore, we have a glorious inheritance to place our hope in. And, and so given all of this, given all that the resurrection accomplishes, given all that is placed before us because of the resurrection, who wouldn't want to believe? Who wouldn't want to believe in this Son of God who gives eternal life? Perhaps you're an unbeliever here tonight. Do you not want to know God in a living relationship? Do you not want to enjoy new, born-again life free from the guilt and pain of this world? Do you want to have your sins forgiven? Do you not want to experience fullness of joy and intimacy with Christ? Do you not want to have security even in the midst of trials? Do you not want to have victory over this fallen world? Do you not want an imperishable and undefiled and unfading inheritance? Well, believe then in the Son. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the one who lives so that you may live. See, the resurrection matters it matters to the unbeliever who can only be saved by faith in the risen Lord. But the resurrection also matters to the believer. It matters not just for when we get saved, but it matters as we live Christian lives in this fallen world. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, because I live, you also will live. And that implies not just the moment of your salvation, it implies every single moment of your life. Now let's be honest, at times as Christians, that life can become very dull and dreary. That life can sometimes just become burdensome. Sometimes that life is, is disconnected from Christ where we are more concerned about what we can get out of Christ than living for Christ. Sometimes that life just seems like it's going through the motions. Why is that? Well, let me answer that by sharing a story with you. On one Easter Sunday, a family was driving to church, and they were, uh, while they were driving, the dad was explaining the significance of Easter Sunday. He was telling his young boy, boy, we are celebrating the, the resurrection of Jesus, coming back from the dead and living now. And so after a few moments, the boy piped up as only kids can and asked this question. Oh, cool. Is Jesus at church today then? Let me, tell, let me ask you, how would you answer that boy? Is Jesus at church today? Was he here this morning? Is he here now? Or, or let's expand upon that a little bit. Is Jesus with our fellowship today? As we leave and we have coffee, is he present is Jesus present when you read your Bible and you pray? Is Jesus present when you're involved in ministry? 
you know, Eugene Peterson, in one of his books on spiritual formation, points out that one of the reasons our life becomes so dreary, one of the reasons our Christianity is dull, one of the reasons our relationship with God has become mundane, and our worship becomes more a self-helping performance, he says ultimately it's because we've lost our sense of wonder. He expands it this way. Listen to what he says. Without wonder, we approach spiritual formation as a self-help project. We employ techniques. We analyze gifts and potentialities. We set goals. We assess progress. And therefore, spiritual formation is reduced to cosmetics. Without wonder, the motivational energies in spiritual formation get dominated by anxiety and guilt. Spiritual formation is then distorted into a moral workalism and a pious athleticism. Let me ask you again, what is the wonder at the heart of the Christian faith? What is the ultimate sign and wonder of the Christian faith? It is the resurrection. It is the fact that Jesus lives. See, it's because of the wonder of the resurrection that we can say, yes, Jesus is here in the spirit in his people. Yes, he is present when we fellowship with one another. Yes, he's there when I pray and I read my Bible. Yes, he's there as I serve in the ministry. Yes, he's there. What some of us need and what I need is to have our wonder recaptured, to have a resurrection wonder again, to realize again that Jesus is alive, and because he is alive, he's here. He's with his people. He hasn't left his people. And if we get this, if I get this, I think our Christianity will look vastly different. I think our relationship with God will look alive. I think our worship will be sincere. Why? Because now we worship as before the face of God who is near. And we're not just going through the motion in our religious circles. And so my prayer is may we believe this. May we be a people who have believed in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. May we know that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and may we live for him and with him because he lives. May that be your prayer even this evening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you confessing this tendency of ours to forget essentials. We forget sometimes what your death on the cross meant, that we now should be dead to sin. And sometimes we forget what your resurrection means for us, that we now live for you. And we pray that as we give ourselves as a church body, that we would do so to a living Savior. We thank you, dear Lord, that we are not placing our faith in a dead prophet We're not going by the words of a dead teacher, but that our faith is settled and rested in and set upon one who lives, one who has conquered sin, Satan, and death.
one who has filled us with his Holy Spirit, one who is involved providentially in our lives, one who is in his church and building his church and working even through his church. And so we pray, dear Lord, I pray that we would recapture our wonder in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That as we've prayed this evening, that we would be missionaries, that we would do so knowing that we go with Christ who has promised, behold, I'm with you till the end of the age. And so I pray, dear Lord, help us in this. We can only do this by the help of your spirit, by your grace. And so we pray, dear Lord, captivate us, take hold of what belongs to you, and we belong to you. We ask this in his wonderful name. Amen. Amen.